0: To another edition of Thunderdome! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we look for something we can rely on in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 104, which begins with the four camera operators, Toby Phillips, David Burr, Louis Irving, and Richard Merriman, and it ends with Foley editor Andrew Stewart. But that's about all the credit talk you're going to get out of us today, because as I mentioned on Monday, today we are talking about Bartertown. It is by far the most organized, the largest... And, dare I say, the most stable thing that we've seen in the Mad Max series of movies so far. I'm trying to think of another situation, maybe Fat Nancy's Diner, but I can't think of any other institution that was so built up and established and, until the end of the movie, running smoothly in the rest of these movies.
1: On the surface, I will absolutely agree with you. And as for looking deeper... That's what the following will be about.
0: Right. But before we get into the talk of the town itself, I want to go a bit more story angled with it. I'm mostly concerned with who you think, between Auntie and Master, who was the bad guy in this movie? If you had to choose between the two of them, which one would it be?
1: Auntie. Only because you pushed me to it. Because I think they're both the bad guy. But if I had to pick one, I would say Auntie.
0: Okay. Because I feel like they both exhibit antagonistic qualities towards Max, where Master presents a large intellectual and physical threat to Max, but then he just gets cowed so ugh, gruesomely. And Auntie, of course, is so much more charming but dangerous. They both have their pros and cons, and I almost want to say that I agree with you flat out that Auntie is the bigger quote-unquote bad guy in this movie.
1: Her bad guy-ness, her qualities of being bad, are more subtle. In the beginning, when she first approaches Max, says, hey, I have this guy who is questioning my authority, which is dangerous for the whole community, I need you to help me take him out, but you have to do it in a fair way. Mm -hmm. So we start out thinking that she is, at the very least, neutral. But she's so subtle and so half-truthiness about the whole thing that once you know the story, you see that along the way, she's not telling you the truth. Yeah, She tells Max that... Master Blaster as a whole is a bad person and needs to be brought down a peg via killing Blaster. But she doesn't say anything about why Blaster is Blaster or what he is capable of or what his history is. She doesn't tell Max anything about that. She doesn't tell him a lot of the details about Bartertown that would color Max's actions.
0: And I find it interesting that we start off with Auntie being very charming, very amicable, very willing to deal with Max. And we go down into Underworld for that first time and it's dark and it's dingy and Master Blaster are stomping around all of these people that are chained up. And you look at this guy and he's like, oh yeah, he's the evil overlord, not Auntie. He's the bad guy. And then Max has his run-in where Master is gloating and pompous and whatnot. To draw a parallel with Road Warrior, Auntie is Papagallo and Master Blaster is Humongous. And I think that's the mindset that Max has going into this movie. That he's dealing with a Papagallo-esque Auntie up against a Lord Humongous-styled Master Blaster.
1: That's a very interesting comparison because... One of the subjects that we talked to death about for Road Warrior to the point where we banned the subject mm-hmm. was what if Humongous had negotiated with Papagallo and they had struck up a tit for tat relationship? They would have ended up like Bartertown. They would have had the muscle doing one part of the stuff and then the politicians doing the other part. And they would have continued to vie for power, just like we're seeing here. Mm. So the answer to that banned question from Road Warrior is Thunderdome. Right. Barter Town. This is what would have happened. Nothing good. A society that seems stable on the surface. And for people who come and go, it is stable. But you run afoul of anybody with any power, and all of a sudden you see it is not
0: stable. One thing that really separates Master Blaster from Humongous, though, is that Humongous did some terrible things. He tied living people to the front of vehicles. He tortured them. He had his men light them on fire. Master Blaster is prideful. That's his sin. And he thinks that his position is higher than it actually is. And that doesn't necessarily paint him in that same echelon as Humongous. So Max is expecting to deal with one person. And of course, he gets someone completely different. And then the roles reverse, where suddenly Humongous is the amicable one. And Papagallo turns into the villain, the one who was wearing that mask of politics. And you rip that mask away, and they show the person underneath. It makes me want to say that there's no real one antagonist in this movie.
1: No. We've talked a lot about the personage of Master Blaster and how they are two people who share an identity. Well, Master and Auntie do the same thing. As an antagonist, they are one. They pair together and function as one. One of them does one part of antagonist antagonist's job. One of them does another part of antagonist antagonist's job. Put them together and you have an antagonist that drives this entire movie. But... On their own, not so much. On their own, if you take each one individually, they have their good points and bad points. But they need each other to fulfill the full antagonist role.
0: I think we want something as simple as a man versus man type narrative conflict. We want Max to go up against a bad guy so that Max can be the hero, so that Max can chase Toe Cutter into the front of a truck. That's what we want. But what we have instead is more of a man versus society situation. You could almost say that Barter Town itself is the bad guy because Barter Town is the thing That will take people out of the wasteland and put chained collars around their necks and put them underground. Barter Town is the place that will put a price tag on a human. One of the very first things we heard the collector say as Max was walking into Barter Town is this much fur will get you either a sack of grain or a couple hours with a woman.
1: And as we talked about on Monday... The prize at the end of Max's hero's journey is to be able to leave that behind again. To be able to continue to wander. So yeah, maybe the antagonist of this movie really is Barter Town as a whole. Mm-hmm. This wretched hive of scum and villainy.
0: I'm looking at a webpage from education.seattlepi.com and they have a little blurby about the man versus society narrative conflict. And it says... This mode of external conflict occurs when the protagonist is placed at odds with a government or cultural tradition. The type of conflict applies to the societal norms as well. For example, if a child gets in trouble with his parents for sneaking out of the house at night, he is in conflict with the societal transition that children are expected to obey their parents. Max is faced with the government assignment of killing someone more or less on the sly, and he breaks that deal and is summarily punished for it. He is in conflict with Bartertown itself. He's in conflict with the idea of engaging in politics.
1: Yeah, and the reason why I chose Auntie over Master as the true antagonist of the movie is because of the end of the movie. At the end of the movie, Auntie says... My, my, aren't we a pair, Raggedy Man? And then walks away, heads right back to Bartertown. They are going to rebuild. She made a promise to the people that if they stuck around, they would rebuild. She's going to rebuild the exact same kind of society that she had before, therefore, reinstating the antagonist of Bartertown. At the very least, Master, who is thoroughly not a good person for how he treated Blaster, he moves on. We have no idea what he moves on to. Mm -hmm. We don't see him in the epilogue. We don't know if he's part of that tribe or went off to do his own thing. But since we don't know what he is doing next, we can't assign him another Barter Town. Right. Like we can with Auntie. So that's why I chose her. For a reason that goes along with what we've been talking about. The Barter Town is the ultimate antagonist. And she's just going to go build another one.
0: She is the one holding the reins of this beast. That is Bartertown.
1: Yep. And Max gets caught up in the struggle for control of those reins.
0: Springboarding off of what you just said, the idea that Auntie is going back to just rebuild Bartertown and start the process all over again. I'm wondering if Auntie and Master, if they learned anything through this experience, this run-in with Max...
1: This puts me in mind of The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Isn't there part of the lore, the history of The Matrix, is that this isn't the first time that the machines have run the simulation, that they've run it before with different details, like giving everybody a utopian society, and the people, the minds inside these machines rejected that idea. So they've run it again and again and again, looking for a successful one. I kind of feel like that's what's going on. Auntie ran a simulation of Barter Town. It ended up in flames. So she's going to reset, run another simulation, Hmm. try to learn from her mistakes, using what resources she has left, because she does not have the same resources she had the first time. And she's going to try and do it better. Hmm. Or she's going to try and do it different. And maybe that one will end up in flames too. Maybe she'll have to reboot again and try another simulation. But hopefully she will learn from her mistakes I think Auntie, in and of herself, isn't an antagonist, isn't a bad person. I think the society that she built allowed her to be that way, and even encouraged her to be that way.
0: I think this goes back to when we first started talking about the idea of Auntie. The idea that in a story that we didn't get to see, she was the hero. She was the capital H, HERO. Of that story. And she created Barter Town. She created a world where once there was suffering, now there's security. Once there was starvation, now there's commerce and an opportunity for people to strive and work together. And that her downfall came when she was not willing to let that world that she created evolve.
1: So, in her own hero's journey, which we get to see or learn about so few parts of. Is not complete. Bartertown wasn't her prize. Bartertown wasn't her coming home. The end of this movie is a setback in that journey. She still has more to do. So she still has plenty of time to decide if she's going to be the good guy or the bad guy.
0: Mm. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. That's why I want an Auntie Entity prequel movie. (laughs) That's why I want the story of someone to be caught in an apocalyptic situation and through their wits and diplomacy or their brutality and willingness to compromise to rise up out of the ashes of the destroyed world around them and create something like barter town i think it's incredibly inspiring to think on and i certainly hope that as auntie drives away from max leaving him alive that she's thinking okay i'm going to do things a little differently this time around now granted she does have to do things differently this time around because she doesn't have master she doesn't have his technical acumen at her disposal
1: maybe she'll learn to value master a little bit more that maybe his worth was such that he should have had more power maybe she'll look back say if only i had found a way to share found a way to fit him into the power structure a little bit differently
0: Hmm. that i'm not so sure of (laughs) i'm not so willing to go on that idea that's fair Auntie is still the queen.
1: You know what? I'm going to agree with you. There's something in our last view of Auntie that I didn't have a chance or take the chance to mention we were going over it minute by minute. But after the line where she says to Max, well, well, aren't we a pair raggedy man? And she walks over to her car, turns back and says, goodbye, soldier, something like that. Yeah. And then drives away. That walk between that first line and the second line, she walks back to her car, is a power walk. She is swaggering, she is in control, she is still the queen of her universe. As far as losing Barter Town and losing Master and what he can provide Bartertown, I don't think that has hurt her confidence at all. One ounce. She is fully confident in herself. That she has the ability to rebuild Barter Town.
0: I think the one thing that she's learned is to not go about it the exact same way she did it before, but to adapt and change based on the knowledge that she gained through this experience. I don't think she's going to come out of this a different person. I think she's going to come out of this a smarter person.
1: It's a shame that she didn't get to interact with the kids at all. Because we've talked about... Auntie and Bartertown as a whole has no interest in legacy, while the waiting ones are nothing but tradition and legacy. And there's a happy medium. Neither of those are good things, but there's a happy medium. So if Auntie had gotten to know the kids and learned of how heavily they depend on tradition and passing things down, she could have learned a lesson from that and used that knowledge and that new insight In her new barter town. Yeah. Because I don't think that point of view has changed at all. She didn't learn anything. It never even came up about legacy. But it's going to be a huge problem for her that she's not going to correct.
0: It almost makes me wonder what Auntie would do if she had one of the waiting ones. Would she find the crack in the earth and start exploiting it? It's hard to say. It's really hard to say. We're not going to talk about the waiting ones until Friday, so I'm not going to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Do you think Master learned anything from this situation? Losing Blaster and being used as a glorified repairman's tool and then making a dramatic escape?
1: Part of me wants to say yes, and part of me wants to say no. I think he misses Blaster, but I don't think he learned a lesson about using and abusing people. I think he learned a lesson about pride but not to the point where he wouldn't do it again.
0: I agree. I look at Master and he strikes me as the kind of person that would look at his given situation and be like, I'm in this situation because Auntie put me here. Not, I'm in this situation because of the decisions that I made. He looks to me like the kind of person who will constantly shift blame and think that they are the be-all, and all the expert in all situations that people must respect or else. And going forward, you're right, we don't see him in the epilogue, but I imagine that he probably fell back into his own ways as soon as they got to Sydney and started trying to reclaim the city. He would be the guy that would know more than everybody else and that everybody must listen to him. And we don't really get a sense of how he got along with the Waiting Ones. He worked together with Pig Killer pretty well in escaping Barter Town. But after that, he was more or less a parcel to be fought over and carried around as they make their escape.
1: And that objectivity skews the overall analysis of Master. And we knew that this was going to happen. We anticipated this. Back when it was still Master and Blaster... We tore him apart for how he treated Blaster. Mm -hmm. And we said, we know that he's going to become a more sympathetic character, but I don't want to be sympathetic towards him. He's a dirtbag of a human being. But here we are at the end, showing him a certain amount of mercy, not despising him as much as we did when it was actively Master and Blaster.
0: No, I'm definitely despising him. I'm firmly in the camp that he has learned nothing constructive from this, that he's going to fall right back into his own ways and continue to just be a garbage person. I haven't forgiven him at all. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't take that long before Savannah told him, hey, Master or Elvis, or whatever he told them to call him, we don't want you around anymore. You're not being helpful. But then again, with how little of the knowing that the Waiting Ones had, he might have been able to stick around for longer just because he knew so much of that old world knowledge.
1: Right. They're really into that old
0: world knowledge. They might have given him that level of respect that Auntie didn't. There's a very good chance that he lived out the rest of his life as the foreman with a factory full of children. And he would tell them where to go, and he would tell them what to do, and he just replaced Blaster with the tribe that left.
1: I guess I'm unhappy that he gets no comeuppance. It feels like he gets to go make a new start.
0: Was his comeuppance being used in Underworld, though? No. Being stripped of his rank and forced to work? No, absolutely not.
1: That's not enough. It is a comeuppance for a crime smaller than his for treating another human being the way he treated Blaster as a ride as a puppet as a pawn as a slave as a gladiator it's not enough
0: especially considering that he just switches location and gets the opportunity to do it all over again
1: he gets the opportunity to reinvent himself the way Auntie does not and Auntie doesn't want to reinvent herself because in her eyes she hasn't committed any crimes. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you think Master realizes that he has committed crimes? Do you think he feels remorse for how he treated Blaster?
0: Well, he does say the phrase, Blaster, I'm sorry. But I think he apologized to Blaster because he knew that by losing Blaster that he would lose his muscle. You could argue that The relationship between Master and Blaster was more paternal, more loving than it was portrayed on screen, but...
1: Those kind of parents go to jail.
0: Yeah. Master was still not a good person. I feel like we keep saying that. I don't think we can overstate it.
1: No, I don't think we can overstate it. I think that for a little while, we were talking more about his abilities rather than his crimes, so... I kind of want to fix that. That his his crimes outweigh his abilities. He shouldn't be allowed to... Hmm. That's a difficult statement. I was going to say he shouldn't be allowed to go to Sydney, make a makeshift workshop, gather a crew, do things. He should be put in jail. But in this post-apocalyptic society, you need everybody to do what they're good at. They need him to develop technology. Mm -hmm. They need his knowing. But does that excuse his crimes? That's a really tough answer.
0: That's one of the downsides of looking at a post-apocalyptic situation through the lens of living in a modern pre-apocalyptic society. It's always weird to think of our real world as a (laughs) pre-apocalyptic society, but (laughs) everything blows up eventually, right? Right. Anyway, in... A modern society, yes, Master would face some comeuppance. In this situation, the worst that could probably happen is they'd lock him in a library and he would just become their human encyclopedia. They would go to him for answers and he would have to sit in this little cage surrounded by books and just regurgitate knowledge all day. But that wouldn't be using him to his full potential because he is more or less an engineer. How else are you going to keep that giant generator running if you're not an engineer of some kind?
1: Mm, yeah, exactly. I think that is specifically his skill set. He is an engineer.
0: And one of the advantages he has being in amongst the waiting ones is the only one that knows his crime is Pig Killer. And Pig Killer doesn't strike me as the kind of person that's going to go out of his way to punish Master.
1: No, Pigkiller's crazy for one. And we do not know the extent of his psychosis, yeah. but it's there.
0: He's definitely a few knives short of a full butcher block.
1: Yeah. I do wonder what happened to Killer. Did he find love?
0: That's an odd first question to ask. My first question is, did he survive being impaled?
1: Okay, yeah. (laughs) Did he survive?
0: That would be my first question. (laughs) Because not only did he get shot through the leg with that giant harpoon, that impractical harpoon... He was bleeding out the door of the truck. He had the harpoon violently ripped from his leg by Max, and then he spent the rest of the movie hobbling around on Tubba's shoulder, just struggling to move.
1: Right. So it's entirely possible. No, no, no. I don't like the idea of him continuing to struggle with the group as a whole all the way through Jedediah's house, into the plane, and off to Sydney. I don't like the idea of him being there for all of that just to die and not to get to enjoy it. Otherwise, what's the point of him going along? Case in point, similar situation where we have Gecko and Finn McCoo who started the voyage but were injured or something happened to them and stopped the voyage. They didn't get to continue. So if Pigkiller wasn't going to finish the voyage, he should have stopped before they left the ground.
0: That's an interesting idea. I'm not sure I fully agree with it though, because Gecko and Finn and Pigkiller, they take these steps to leave the environment that they're in because they have a dream or an aspiration or a desire. And the fact that they fall along the way doesn't negate their decision to go in the first place. I think it's just sometimes things like that happen. Think about when you're playing the Oregon Trail. You start off your journey, you get your oxen, your yokes, your bullets and stuff so you can hunt all of the buffalo and whatnot. And along the way, sometimes your family members die of dysentery. It's just part of the game. I'm not so much upset by the fact that, oh, Gecko and Finn should have stayed put because they died and it totally made their journey pointless. I think the fact that they went on the journey in the first place says a lot about them and that it's important that they went.
1: It is about the going on the journey, and that's something that is very important in the hero's journey steps as well, is that choice, that call to adventure and accepting the call. And all three of them accepted the call. I think the difference is that all three of them had some event where they were stopped on their journey. Now, with Gecko and Finn McCoo, the journey stopped. They were done. They were dropped from the story. In a place in the story where we knew they were dropped from the story. We continued on with everybody else while they got to continue on and the others did not. With Pig Killer, he accepted his call. He made his own call to adventure. He got hurt along the way, and he continued the journey. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that if he died before reaching Sydney or shortly thereafter, that's after the story for us is over. So what's the point in him dying? If he was going to die and not get to live in Sydney with the tribe, then he might as well have died before they even got on the plane. Because if we're not going to continue the journey without him, then what's the point in him stopping the journey at all? So what I'm saying is that, yes, he lived. He lived because we didn't see him die. Okay. Because there's no point in him dying off screen like that.
0: I think things get a little wild west after the credits roll i'm okay with the idea that pig killer got all the way to sydney and succumbed to his injuries i'm okay with that it doesn't happen on screen there's no confirmation that it does happen but i'm okay with it if that's what happened if terry hayes was here to talk to us about pig killer and he said oh yeah that was always the intention that pig killer would get to sydney and then die shortly after then i'm okay It doesn't bother me a whole lot. I think the important thing for Pig Killer is that he was so crazy that he pulled off an insane and, frankly, impossible escape that he made possible. His idea to take out the guards, free master, and then drive the main engine of Barter Town, the thing that kept the lights on, use that as an escape vehicle, is patently insane no normal person in their right mind would ever think to look at a generator and say yeah that's my getaway vehicle (laughs) we're gonna hop on these rails that he has no confirmation even go anywhere and we're gonna just ride off into the sunset end of plan like when Max goes up to him and says hey what's the plan and Pigiller's like there is no plan this is the plan us on the rails that's it And you have to admire his moxie.
1: Oh, absolutely. I absolutely do. He is just the right kind of crazy. Yeah. And has been throughout the film. Not just in his spur-of-the-moment escape plan, but right from the beginning when we meet him. And he makes friends with Max. And then we get to see him watching Max at the Thunderdome. All along the way, he is... Just the right kind of crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at Barter Town as a whole. And we've got Auntie up there at the top. She's got this book of law that she's written. She's got the collector and Dr. Dealgood and Iron Bar and the guard to enforce that. And it makes me wonder what sort of government that could be described as. Do you have any ideas?
1: Yeah, I saw this question on the list. It's a really hard question. <laughs> like real life governments? Yeah. No equivalents come to mind, but it doesn't seem like a good government. Like, if any come to mind, I imagine they're not great governments.
0: Because I was looking at Barter Town, and you've got one central head where the power is centralized. But, as we go through the movie, you get the sense that Auntie is not above the law. She has to operate within the established rules ...that are commonly known throughout the entirety of Bartertown, And so, it doesn't strike me as a full-on monarchy... ...because in a monarchy, you cannot arrest the Queen. Like, in modern-day England, the police cannot arrest the Queen. They can arrest the royal family, but they cannot arrest the Queen. The Queen can stand out in the middle of London and shoot someone... ...and she cannot be arrested, because that's how the country is built... Okay. Prince Philip can't. Prince Philip can try that and he'd get arrested, but not the queen.
1: Okay, but the queen is held in place not by election, but by the court of public opinion.
0: Well, technically the queen is held in power by, you know... Heredity. Heredity and the will of a deity. The only reason the queen is the queen is because she's in the right family and that at some point in history, everybody thought that that family in particular was supposed to be in charge because God said so.
1: Right. But her appointment as queen being divine is to serve the people. It's not to serve God. It's to serve the people. She is appointed by God to serve the people. If the people revolt against her, she may still carry the label of queen, but she will have no power. The only power she has is what people give her what people allow her to have. Hmm. And as long as the people love her, then she has power. Similarly to Auntie, she wasn't elected. She wasn't divinely appointed. She put herself in that position, but she's still subject to the court of public opinion. If everybody revolts against her, if they find that she has broken the law, then she can be pulled down off of her throne. And it's not a one-to-one with a monarchy. The queen, you're right, cannot be literally pulled down from off of her throne. Nobody's going to come in and dethrone her. But they can symbolically dethrone her. But a big difference between the queen and auntie is that the queen, her rule is more symbolic and more about the hearts of the people, where then they have the Prime Minister and Parliament who do the actual ruling.
0: Mm-hmm. So I thought for a moment about the idea of Bartertown being ruled by law, and something like a republic, where the Constitution is what dictates the final decision of law, but with a republic the real power dwells within the people the people choose representatives the representatives observe the laws of the land and then make sure that they are followed what barter town more represents is something like a constitutional monarchy it's a form of monarchy in which the sovereign exercises authority in accordance with a written or unwritten constitution constitutional monarchy differs from absolute monarchy in that constitutional monarchs are bound to exercise their powers and authorities within the limits prescribed within an established legal framework. Uh, countries like Morocco have that set up, where the Constitution grants substantial discretionary powers to the sovereign.
1: Mm-hmm. It does seem like Bartertown's government doesn't really one-to-one fall into a governmental category that we have. No. They have a constitution... Such as it is. They have a body of laws. Mm -hmm. But they don't select representatives. But their leader isn't divinely appointed. The leader is self-appointed.
0: Right, because she's the one that made the town in the first place.
1: Can that be translated into being divinely appointed? Perhaps. I made you, therefore I lead you. And then she has more or less a council that manages their own category.
0: Right. On this page that I'm looking at, list of current constitutional monarchies. The top one on the list is United Kingdom.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I thought Britain was a constitutional monarchy.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. But you still can't arrest the queen.
1: Why not? Is it a special provision in the constitution that she is infallible? That she cannot commit crimes? Because seriously, governments that hold somebody above the law, that's not healthy.
0: All right, so I'm looking at a website. It's The Guardian from the UK, guardian.com. They have a lifestyle page where it says, ask a grown-up. And the question is, can the police arrest the queen? And so Metropolitan Police Commander Nick Fgrave answers seven-year-old Maisie's question, where he says, there is no 100% clear answer on this. It would depend on the exact circumstances and the view of Parliament. However, when you join the service, you make an oath that I will well and truly serve the queen in the office of constable. The Commissioner and Deputy Commissioner of the Met Police are both royal appointments. All cases that are heard in a Crown Court case are the Queen versus, because the Queen is also head of the criminal justice system. The Monarch could not prosecute herself. Prisons are also Her Majesty's prison service. Some people say prisoners are serving time at Her Majesty's pleasure. Considering that the police service, courts, and prisons are all under the direction of the Monarch, the Queen herself cannot be arrested, prosecuted, or imprisoned, unless under exceptional circumstances. However, the rest of the royal family can face arrest for a crime just like anyone else.
1: Sounds like a semantics game.
0: Well, yeah, that's what law is. Law is just a semantics game.
1: So what I got out of that answer is, yes, of course she can. It would just be weird. On paper, it would say Her Majesty versus Her Majesty. hmm But of course she can. She doesn't get to commit crimes. How many queens have been beheaded?
0: Yeah, but those queens are more or less beheaded like a French situation where an angry mob beats down the the gates of Versailles, drags out everybody inside, and then puts them to the guillotine. True. A sort of revolt like that, not usually quote-unquote legal.
1: But that's exactly the sort of revolt that Auntie is in danger of.
0: Oh, yeah. All monarchs are in danger of that. Anyone in a position of power from a middle management type in an office to the president of a country is constantly in danger of armed revolt. I don't know. Or maybe not even armed revolt, just revolt in general. That comes with the idea of power.
1: Yeah, which I mentioned earlier that the queen, what can happen to her is that she loses the hearts of her people and is therefore put out of power, even if she's still sitting on the throne. Auntie, with the amount of violence and lawlessness in general of this society, if she takes enough wrong steps, the people will storm her penthouse.
0: And those people will get cut down by her guard.
1: Unless her guards are part of it. They're not immune to being unhappy with her decisions.
0: Her guard is the only demographic that she has to keep happy. And from the look of how well-dressed they are in their uniforms and how well-armed they are with all of their weapons and how physically built they are, I'm pretty sure she keeps her guard very happy. Because at the end of the day, if they are there to cut down any dissenters, that's fine.
1: That reminds me of a bit from West Wing. The president is making a joke with a member of the military about a military coup, and the president says something about he would have the Secret Service to protect him, and the military member said, in the event of a coup... What makes you think the Secret Service is going to be on your side? And the president's like, well, that's going to fester. (laughs) That thought's going to keep me up at night. As it should. Yep. So in a coup, in a revolt, who's to say that the guards are going to be on her side? If she does something bad enough to get the people to revolt against her, it could also be bad enough to get her guards to revolt against her. Mm -hmm. Cushy jobs or not.
0: It's always a possibility. It is. It's why they say heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's a society built on law, and yet it it exists in a lawless world that is not (laughs) the kind of place that you would expect good, law-abiding people to stay. No. In a word, you could say it's wild and unkempt, maybe even a little untamed, a little feral, maybe. (laughs) Which brings us to the end of today's minute. We are going to come back on Friday There is one group of people that we have not yet talked about, and that is the waiting ones. So wait around until Friday. We will come back and talk about them for a while. So come on back for that. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
0: Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link.
1: Thank you for joining us for Minute 104 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time.
0: Everybody.